Hey, turn to John 17. We're, we're trying to work through that. I, I talked to someone the other day and we're, we're trying to get through this. Uh, I told you though, you know, this is the longest prayer that Jesus or is recorded by him uh, in the New Testament. It, it really is kind of the Lord's prayer if you take it that way. It's the longest prayer he ever prayed. And I find, and as I work through it, um, at least in my mind and thinking, uh, there's a lot of stuff in here. That's the theological technical word, stuff. And, um, you know, as I'm wading through it, I'm trying to say, okay, I, I want to be careful to try to deal with what substantively is here, not every detail, but substantively what, what Jesus is saying as we read this prayer and, and come to some understanding. And so I've sort of titled this or this idea, uh, if you will, uh, Jesus' intercession for you. Jesus' intercession for you, because remember there in the passage, it says, I don't just pray for these who he's talking to at that point in time. He said, I am praying also for those who will come to believe because of their testimony. So, you know, I don't just ask on their behalf, verse 20. I'm praying for those who will come. So I'm just saying we're included. We're part of that. And so in this uh, prayer, as I've uh, sort of worked through it and continue to, I, I see here... Um, what I'm calling, just to get my head wrapped around it, is this, that there are certain things here that occupy a, a certain place. There, there are things here in Jesus's prayer that I think occupy a certain place in our lives. Um, and as we read it and as we work, we're going to start at verse 12. As we start working through it, I want to have you to be thinking that Jesus is praying this prayer for us and there are certain things that are to have a certain place in our life. Do you have anything like that in your life? Something that has a certain, maybe a piece of furniture, or a, I have a friend that has a car that he's kept all the time he's been married because it's the car that they first dated in. He's a real sentimental guy and has that car. And uh, uh, I know other people that have, you have anything like that? Just think about it for a second, that you have something, it may not be ter ter terribly valuable, but... It's a, it has a special place in your life. Think about that. You, you got that in your life? I could see some of y'all smiling and, and uh, some of you poking somebody like, don't say that. <laughs> you know, I was thinking about that. Though, that I've told you the story years ago that when I was nine years old, my dad stood in line at a Buick dealer in Kilgore, Texas for hours to get a baseball sign by Mickey Mantle. Uh, and Mickey was at the height of his career at about 64 and uh, my dad stood in line, and when he got home, he brought that ball and said, you boys are never to play with this, ever, right? And the obedient child that I was, one day I told you, I've already told you, know, the movie Sandlot is my life. You know? So, you know, I inspired it. Thank you. Didn't get any royalties. But one day we had a huge baseball game in my neighborhood, and we lost a ball, and so we're just playing, and I said, I got a baseball. I know, I know, I know. So we played with that ball, beat the cover off of it, finally till we knocked it in the woods and couldn't find it. Now, I tell you, I already told you that story, but I got another baseball that has a particular place in my life. I told that story one time to a men's Bible study and how I lost it, and my dad didn't kill me. He, he, there were too many police around, um, and he was a pastor, so, you know, you just couldn't have a kid come up missing, you know, that easily. Um, so he spared my life. Um, but I told that story at a men's Bible study here. And after that Bible study was over, uh, a guy in our church named Chuck Dar. Some of y'all know Chuck. 
Chuck said to me, hey, could you come by my office for a couple minutes? And I said, sure. And it's right down here on the road. And so I get into his office and we sit for a minute. He walks over to a little case over there and he, he says, uh, I want you to have this. You know what it is, don't you? Yeah, it's a baseball signed by Mickey Mantle. And Chuck said, I want you to have this. I know you lost it. I want you to have it. But every time you look at it, I want you to remember your dad. I want you to remember. Now, I was shocked because I didn't think Chuck was that nice, actually. You know, I, <laughs> honestly, I thought, he's an engineer. He you know, multiplies letters. Uh, you know, does that kind of math? I do not know Chuck was that nice. It really shocked me. Uh, <laughs> he's a good guy. But I thought, you know, that baseball my dad gave me has a particular place in my life. It's gone now. It's in my heart. But every time I look at that, it's in a little plastic or, a, you know, whatever they call that stuff, a plexiglass in a little box. And it's over there in my office at the house. And when I look at it, I think of my dad and I think of Chuck. And it's got kind of a special place in my heart. And I, I think, you know, when, when, when Jesus is working through here his prayer, I think there's some things here that he's saying this needs to have a special place in your life. Now, that's my reading. That's my understanding of it here. And so I want to kind of walk us through that of some of these things that Jesus, as he speaks here, I want to suggest that he refers to is uh, that we have a special place. Notice here in verse 12, while I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you've given me. And I guarded them and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy and it may be made full in themselves. I've given them your word, and the word world has hated them because they're not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is the truth. As you sent me into the world, I've sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they themselves may also be sanctified in the truth. Now, I, I want to just say that I think Jesus is saying there's some things here that have a certain place in our life. And I want to suggest the first one here is this, the place of God's word. You'll notice here in 12 and 13 and 14, there is this recurrence of the term word, uh, even the word scripture. It recurs several times here in these three or four verses. And I was reading that and looking at that and thinking, uh, you know, uh, Jesus here uh, is, is referring to to say, you know, I've been with them and I guarded them and, and I gave them your word. And it seems to me that he's suggesting that the word of God ought to have a a particular place in our life. And I want to suggest that that uh, place that Jesus is referring to is this. It's a place of fulfillment. Notice what he says, and I'm going to try to dig around this for a while. This is kind of a touchy area in this passage, but he said, I was with him, I gave them your word, and it was fulfilled. Fulfilled. Now, even though this passage has a bit a troubling uh, statement here, we'll talk about this here in a minute, about Judas but Jesus reveals that God's word is fulfilled in his life and in his ministry and in this experience. 
And so I wonder here if Jesus is attempting to give us this word or this idea that one of the things or one of the places that the word of God should occupy in our life is an understanding that the word of God is true and is being fulfilled. You think about that? I mean, it's not just words on the paper. It's not just, it's not just thoughts and ideas, but these are promises. These are statements. These are realities that Jesus has stated throughout scripture, throughout here. He said, I gave them my, your word and they will be fulfilled. Now here's where the struggle is. You know, I told you, I, I've got, when I work with students, I, I, I remind them that there are four questions that really, in my judgment, all of life revolves around. I really mean it. One, is there a God? Two, if there is, and you know, if you say no, then you don't have to go to the next one, but if there is, what is the nature of this God? That's a critical piece. Is he a maniac or is he always after you to get you or does he care about you? So what, what is his, the, this God's nature? That's a real important question. And I would say again, I've said to my students, you can bump along in life long enough until tragedy hits and then that thing will surface, right? You go through life, you know, everything's going good and you don't, you know, I don't have time for these esoteric discussions or I don't have time for these theological banterings. You know, things are great, but man, when something bad happens, the question rises, why would God let this happen? Or the question rises, what is God doing, Right? So what is this God like? It's an important issue. We have to deal with it, all of us. The third question is, what does this God expect of me? What does this God expect of me? You know, not, not what do I just think, but what does this God expect of me? And then where I want to dig in on this one, this fourth question, it's the last one, is this. What can I expect from this God? I, I, I've said before at times that I think this is where a huge struggle is. Sometimes our hearts and minds are more filled with churchianity or religiosity than it really is the word of God. What does God promise? What does he say? What, what does he say he will do and what he won't do? And, and again, this is a struggle because Jesus is saying here, the scriptures are fulfilled here. That means they're being brought to completion. The term fulfilled here is used often in the New Testament. You find it mostly in Matthew, where Matthew seems to be driving a theological point in the book of Matthew. It's not a diary. It's not, okay, this happened on Tuesday and then this happened on Wednesday. The gospels aren't diaries. They're not, they're not just day after day. They're, they're theological documents that are attempting to try to communicate something about Jesus. And it is that he's the fulfillment of the Old Testament. That his life and ministry and work fulfills the work of God. Here's a verse you ought to write down. I'll just read it to you that has something to do. And it, 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 at some level, it's helped me from the standpoint where I've struggled with, okay, what can I expect from this God? What, what will Jesus fulfill in my life? 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20 says this, all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. All the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. Now, what does that mean, Cliff? Well, I'm glad you asked. Chris told you about two or three voices in my head. That the idea that God is fulfilling his promises 
to his people in the person of Jesus. He's the one that God is fulfilling the promise in. Now, there are other promises we know. But the question is, for us, in terms of the fulfillment of Scripture in our own life, we dare not assume that the promises are all about us. But they're often, if you will, understood as about him. That God has fulfilled his promises to us in Jesus. Think about that. That that, that could have some huge implications in the way you approach scripture, in the way you think about promises, in the way you think about what God is going to do in your life. Fulfilled. Jesus said here, I've kept them, I gave them your word, and they were all guarded, except, notice here if you will, except for the one called the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Now, this has always been a disturbing passage. Anybody else get bugged by this one? By me? Yeah. It's always bothered me. So we'll talk about it some other day. <laughs> yeah. Um, <clears throat> when it says here <clears throat> that the scripture... Now, let me give you a couple of, of thoughts here in this regard. He says, this happened or <clears throat> he perished that the scripture might be fulfilled. Now, I want to say this again. This is comforting to me and disturbing. It's comforting to me in that, that I have the assurance, and you do too, that God will fulfill his word. That, that we don't know the timing on it. We don't know the way of it. I, I remember reading a, a story some time ago about Adonira Judson, who was a, a great missionary and went to India. And upon his going to India, he went there because God, he said, told him to go there and do ministry. Um, the problem is that when he got there and did ministry, um, he, his wife died, which was pretty hard to take. And then uh, his children died, which was even more difficult to take. And what was really difficult to take <clears throat> was the sense of fulfillment <clears throat> that Judson had to wrestle with was that in his ministry, no person in that Indian area ever came to faith in Jesus. Nobody. Nobody ever came to faith in Jesus. Can you imagine toiling away, losing your wife and losing your children and no results? Judson's biographer tells the kind of the story that upon his funeral, he's dead now, he died. There are lots of people gathered there because this man had been there and served for years. And uh, they said, this is part of the the story that I read, that when his casket touched the ground, when they lowered it down, the Spirit of God fell on that place and a massive revival swept India. He was dead. The only way he ever saw that was from the balcony of heaven by looking down. God fulfilled what he said he was going to do, but it wasn't in his lifetime. I I don't say that to be flippant or to say that to be um, silly. I say that to say that this comforts me in the sense that I have the assurance that God's word will be 
fulfilled. The, the rabbis used to say it like this, <clears throat> gegreptai. It's like you can spit on people if you want to do it. <clears throat> you know, <clears throat> gegreptai means it stands written and it will happen. They often said when Jesus sees, when you see the, him say that in the, in the New Testament, it is written. What they're saying literally, it stands written and it will happen. Gegreptai. Fulfilled. I take comfort in that, do you? <clears throat> that God's word is and will be fulfilled. I don't know how he's gonna do it. I don't understand the, the circumstances. I don't know when. I've given him a few dates if you'd like them, you know. I've told God, you know, you could do this by this. This would be awesome, right? <clears throat> Anybody else done that? Yeah, I want it fulfilled on my timetable and, you know, I'm, I'm just willing to tell him. Do you have the assurance? Do I have the assurance <clears throat> That the, the place that the scripture has in our life is that we're believing and trusting that it will be fulfilled. I don't know how. I'm not sure when. I, I think anyone that thinks that God is some kind of vending machine, that you say all the right words, you pull all the right levers, and you get everything you want, we've done a lot of damage to people over that. But that the idea, the assurance that Jesus would say here and other places, this happened because the scripture was fulfilled. No guesswork. None of that. This notion of being fulfilled. Now let's talk about here just for a moment what bothers me. There are a lot of things. <laughs> this idea that the son of perdition perished, which was to fulfill the scripture. Um, I want to suggest a couple of things here to you that I've got to kind of dig through. Let me, let me read to you something John Calvin said, who was no notably understood or <clears throat> notable in his teaching of predestination when he said this, it would be wrong for anyone to infer from this that Judas's fall should be imputed to God rather than himself. And that necessity was laid upon him by the prophecy. You know, he's saying the prophecy didn't make him do it. God didn't make him do it. It's simply that God foresaw and understood as a friend of mine said it this way, God knew there'd be a volunteer. <laughs> God knew there'd be a volunteer. <clears throat> there would be somebody who would do this. Now, <clears throat> I want to dig around this just for a minute because this notion of predestination or this notion that things are already kind of chimed out is a bit disturbing. And I would, you've, you've heard me speak on this before, so I'm not going to go into a lot of detail. But this, this term, I will tell you this, this term son of perdition is also found in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3. This is not the only time it occurs. This is a Hebraic way or a Hebrew, a Hebrew way of saying somebody that goes to perdition. Someone that goes to perdition. Just someone who rebels against God and goes to perdition. This passage <clears throat> refers to Judas certainly, but it also refers to someone in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3. It's not just one person. So when you think about this, it was fulfilled. It was fulfilled. Let me give you, and by the way, Calvin in his statement here on this, that this guy, if you will, it wasn't that the prophecy required it like that. Remember, the Bible tells us in John 12, we looked at before, he was a thief. He was a thief. He stole from the money the purse, or what do they call that? He, he was a thief. The other one says in John 13 that he and whatever the devil entered him. 
The devil entered him through some means. We're not completely sure. But here's this idea of, of, of the scripture being fulfilled. I'm going to get off of this in a quick second, but let me just say, in the New Testament, has anybody besides me ever looked at when the Bible says, and this was to fulfill that verse, and you go read the original verse, and you go, that's not about that. Anybody but me? Yeah. You read and go, wait a minute. That isn't about that. I mean, most famously is Isaiah 7. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son and you shall call his name Emmanuel. That's a, that's a sign that Isaiah says is gonna happen to the king. I mean, that's real time history back there. That really happened in Isaiah's day. Does that bother anybody but me? <laughs> you know, and, and then sometimes the way the, the writers in the New Testament take verses out of context. My, my New Testament professor told the seminary, you do that, I'll flunk you. I said, why would you do that? He said, because you're not an apostle. I said, well, in some circles I am. <laughs> some people think I am. Some people think I'm an apostrophe. But uh, 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 there's a practice here going on. And that's this. It's called Pesher, P-E-S-H-E-R. P-E-S-H-E-R. If you study uh, Judaism or uh, Jewish rabbis, you understand there's all kinds of, you know, we have a New Testament and then we have commentaries. Um, we, you know, we read them sometimes and my professor in seminary, I, this, is, this is theology humor, so it may not work. Um, but he just would say, you remember now, these commentaries you have, all these guys are just commentators. You get that? Oh, y'all got that. Yeah, they're just commentators. I thought it was kind of stupid, but... <laughs> Um, so we have commentaries. In Judaism, they have what they call midrash. That's commentary on the, the, the Torah or the commentary on um, the law. It, we, we've got people that write good books, you know, like, uh, like uh, um, I wish I could remember an author right now. <laughs> I need to go to the doctor. <laughs> uh, boy, uh, Lance uh, or... Uh, that is, uh, James Montgomery Boyce uh, or uh, James Martin Lloyd-Jones or John Wesley, great writers, spiritual writers. In Judaism, that's called Haggidah, great spiritual things. I mean, Judaism is full of different, they've got Haggidah, Halakha, Midrash, Mishnah, Targums, uh, uh, Torah. There's this thing called Pesher and it's, it, it happens all the time in Judaism where a passage is commented on that we know what happened originally, but here's the real understanding of it. See, Psalm 41 says that somebody who ate my bread raised their heel up against me. That's the common one about Judas. Well, that David was writing about somebody else. The New Testament writers take that and say, no, wait a minute, I know what that was, I see that. But what that was really referring to was in the future, Judas. Everybody in Judaism does this. This is not unusual. It's not strange. It's called Pesher. It's the idea that all the Old Testament and lots of the Old Testament writings have a fuller, more understood meaning called being fulfilled. 
And so the Old Testament <clears throat> sees some of this stuff in the Old Testament, or the New Testament writers see this in the Old Testament, that somebody's gonna raise their heel up against G the Son of God. Or they read Psalm 2 that says that you laugh over your enemies and that's a messianic psalm. All they're saying is, look, we got some insight here. What was written in original context means this now. I think this will help you. This doesn't mean that God chose Judas or made him do this. It means that they're looking back and saying, you know what, we remember in Psalm 41, this was gonna happen. Here he is. I don't mean to complicate it too far, but to suggest to you that the New Testament often takes Old Testament verses and reinterprets them as to their, what we would call, fuller meaning. And that's why they can say, it was what? Fulfilled. Not an individual person. Nobody's identified in the Old Testament who's going to betray Jesus. Just these passages that are written that rabbis then or these writers begin to say, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. That's what that was talking about. If you're interested in this, we could talk some more about it. But it, it, it helps me to understand, if you will, that this idea of fulfillment is not some predestinated idea. Not as Calvin said, God didn't make him do this or this was. It was that when you look back on the Old Testament and say, you know what that verse looks like? That looks like that was part of that fulfillment into the new. So it was fulfilled. Nobody knew it in the Old Testament. Nobody understood it in the Old Testament. It's when you get to the New Testament, they look back and say, uh, that's what that was. That might help you when you realize, when you read that the New Testament writers are doing the very same thing. They're pulling verses out of their context to say, this is what this means. Because Isaiah 7 has something to do with a real-time historical event in the days of Isaiah about a sign to King Hezekiah. It's real. Most of us have read it so many times, we think it only refers to Jesus. It refers to a real-time event in the Old Testament. And that when Jesus is born, the New Testament writers say, wait a minute, the fuller fulfillment, the real fulfillment, the complete fulfillment of that verse is found in this little baby in Bethlehem. So, fulfillment. I probably haven't answered all your questions and I may have raised more. I feel like the, 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 the feature of really good teaching is you raise more questions than you answer. So we just did that, right? You're thinking, Cliff, you're a chicken. <laughs> okay, second thing. Scripture, it's a complicated place. I want you to look at this here. I just, I'm looking at this in verses 13 and 14. But now I come to you and these things I speak in the world. Now, Jesus is speaking. These are his words. So I'm calling that scripture or the words of God. I speak so that they may have joy and be made full. I've given them your word and the world hates them because they're not of the world, even as I'm not in the world. So, I mean, look at how complicated this is. What does the word of God do for us? It gives us what? They're in, they're in verse uh, uh, 13. You can answer this. What, what, is this. what is the word, the words that Jesus spoke, what does it give us? Huh? Joy, right? See it there, right? I, 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 I'm leaving them. I've, I've spoken your word to them that their what joy might be full. And then he says, what, what else happens? The world hates them. The Bible's a complicated thing. 
It's not just straightforward all the time. There, there, there's, it's complicated. It is, in, in, in one sense, a reason for joy, and in another sense, a reason for hate. And that word means hate, mystheo. I mean, it's, it's not, not softened up here. I want to look at that here a second. The place that Scripture should have is, number one, a place of fulfillment. Second, the place of Scripture is a complicated place. I think this sometimes knocks us off our uh, sense of things that, that, that we, we know the words of Jesus bring us joy. Why doesn't it bring you joy? You know? It's kind of naive. We're going to look at this because I tell my students, you don't read the New Testament very well. It's my opinion. Uh, you can't read the New Testament Bible very long until you realize um, Jesus can mess your apple cart up pretty fast. He is not that easy to get along with at times. Right? He, this is not this meek and mild little Galilean that you know just kind of walks around and everybody, oh, Jesus is wonderful. Remember, they killed him. I don't know if you remember that. So our sense of joy from the words of Jesus, our sense of peace, like we, we just think, well, why don't you get it? There are times in my life, and I know in yours, when the words of Jesus bring incredible joy. I wrote my notes here. Um, here here's a couple of them. When he says, I, you know, I've, I've, I've come to them, I've spoken your words so that they may have my joy made full in them. See, Jesus' joy was that he knew the will and word of the Father. Think about it in your own life. What, 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 what verse, what passage would you say, when I think of this verse, the words of Jesus, it brings me joy? You got one? You can say it out loud. We won't hurt you. Huh? Romans 8, 28, all things work together for good to them to love God. Yeah, what else? What, what are some of the words here? Yeah. Joy of the Lord is my strength. All right, okay. What else? Huh? I know the plans I have for you, not for evil, but for good. Isaiah 20, or Jeremiah 29. What else? I'll never leave you or forsake you. Yeah, let's get the words of Jesus here, you know? This, this idea, I will never leave you Never forsake you. That's found in Hebrews 13, but it's, a def, it's all, the, all that idea of Matthew 28 where Jesus said, I'm gonna be with you forever, right? What else? Huh? Yeah, peace I give to you, not as the world give, do I give you? Yeah. You know, I thought about John 6, 37. All that the Father gives to me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never cast them out. Think about that. Jesus said that all that the Father get will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never cast them out. I gotta tell you, that's one of my life verses. I've thought God had every reason in the world to kick me out a lot of times. Don't amen that. Right. <laughs> it always hurts me when you do that. I, I've had every reason in the world to believe that I'm not good enough and I haven't done it. And I, I'll just tell you this verse, John 6, 37, you're right, that's a great verse. This is the verse that John Bunyan said, not, not the guy that had the ox, the guy that wrote the book. <laughs> yeah. My students think that John Bunyan, he, he had a big blue, no, no. <laughs> go back, go back, go back. Not a big blue ox and he dug the grand can. John Bunyan, not Paul Bunyan. John Bunyan. He said of this verse, 
He said in his great book, uh, God's Mercy to the Greatest of Sinners, he said this, there is no verse in the Bible the devil fought me harder over. No verse in the Bible that the devil fought me harder over. All that the Father give to me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never cast them out. I read a story one time where a guy came to a pastor and said, you know, I'd like to come to Jesus, but I think I've sinned too much. And he said, well, it doesn't say all those who come to me unless they sin too much. (laughs) He said, well, um, you know, I want to come to Jesus, but I'm not sure my motives are right. He said, well, it doesn't say all those who come to me and have their motives right. I mean, just pounding this guy on the ground, you know, every objection, every objection. Well, I, you know, I, I, I don't know if I have the right feelings. Well, it doesn't say to all those who come to me have the right feelings. It says, all those who come to me, I will not cast them out. I want to tell you something in the grammar of that. It's pretty encouraging to me. In Greek, there are two ways to say no. I've told you this, and I take great delight as a University of Texas fan, that the word in Greek for no is O-U. It's the truth. I'm not kidding you. Sorry, all you OU fans. It's o, literally O-U. So every time you wear that, you know, you're just saying no. Okay? To anybody who knows Greek. Of course, I don't, well, I'm not going to say that. <laughs> anyway, uh, that's one. And the other word is uh, meh, which is uh, mu, nu. Meh means no. O-U is used for no in the indicative mood. And meh is used in every other mood, declarative, I mean, or uh, 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 subjunctive or optative or imperative. What I'm saying is this. You back those two no's up. What that means is this. There's no, right to, there's no way to write this verse in any mood in Greek where it doesn't say no. It's impossible to write it where it does not mean I will never cast you out. Some translations try to ramp it up and they put the word certainly never. That's what they're trying to do. They're trying to account for the fact that there is no way to write this verse that it cannot, in any other way than saying, no, I will not cast you out. That's pretty good, huh? Jesus said these words, I give you, you know, I, I, I wrote down Matthew eleven twenty eight twenty. come to me, are you weary and heavy laden? I'll give you rest. You know, are you weary, you heavy laden? You get to come then. Matthew 9, 13, where Jesus said, I desire mercy and sacrifice. I, I didn't come to call righteous. I came to call sinners. Matthew 11, one to six. I, I love that passage where John the Baptist has been in jail and the certainty has been knocked out of him. You know, think about it. John the Baptist, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, identifies Jesus. He gets locked up in Herod's jail for a few months, and you know what gets knocked out of him? The certainty. He says to his disciples, you go ask Jesus a question for me. You know what it is? Are you the expected one, or should we look for somebody else? Can you imagine that? John the Baptist filled with the Holy Spirit from his birth identifies Jesus at the river Jordan, say, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He's the one who baptizes you in the Holy Spirit. And after a few months in jail says, are you the one? See, that's that fourth question I told you. What can you expect 
from God. He says, are you the expected one? That's a messianic title. Or should we look for somebody else? And Jesus says, go tell John what you see. The lame are walking. The blind are seeing. The dead are being raised. And listen to this. And blessed is he who does not stumble over me. You know what's happening there? Jesus is not acting like he expected. That's why Jesus said, blessed is he who doesn't stumble over me. Listen, part of our issue here with God's word for it to bring comfort, we've got to get our expectations lined up with what the scriptures tell us. That, I, that's been a lifelong journey for me. Still is. I don't, I don't have it all down. Becky does, but I don't. <laughs> See, it'll bring joy to us if our expectations are right. All of these verses. Notice here, Jesus said in John 14, 17, 14, the world's gonna hate you. Why? Because you've got his word. Now listen, I... I think sometimes people may hate Christians for good reason. <laughs> We've talked about that before, right? If you get arrogant, mouthy, you know, know-it-all. But Jesus said, they're going to hate you because of my word. Be certain that it's God's word and not just our attitude toward people. There are going to be some things that people won't like. When Jesus said in John, in Matthew 4, 17, he said, you have to repent. You have to repent. That means change your mind, means turn around. I, I say to my students, you know, I grew up in a church that they always said to me, I had to accept Jesus into my heart. I, I didn't often hear about it. I need to repent. I, I just heard accept him. And now when students say that to me, they say, I accepted Jesus in my heart. I'm, I'm happy for him. I say, as what? And then they look at me like, should have never talked to you. Right? Because you said, I accepted Jesus into my heart, and I'm saying, as what? What would he say? Savior and Lord, boss. See? Not just Savior Rabbit's foot, but Savior and Lord. So there are going to be people who are going to hate you or me, if we dare to deign and believe God's word. Now, again, I, boy, I'm, I want to be really careful here. Um, all of God's word, you know, they may, they may hate us if we say, well, I'm, I got, I, I'm to love my enemies. That's also the word of God, right? I'm not supposed to hate them or castigate them, or try to treat them as if they're less than. I'm commanded to love my enemies. You are too. Uh, I, 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 Jesus often said, hey, don't do your acts of righteousness to be seen of people, to be congratulated. People don't like that. 
People want to be recognized for what they do. We all do, you know? I pray on Sunday morning. I, listen, I told Becky on the way to church this morning, I, I pray almost every Sunday morning. Okay, Cliff, this is not about you, right? That you look clever or you're smart. This is not about you. And we have to get that calibrated over a donut. And <laughs> it's generally my drug of choice. <laughs> you know, people, people like to be recognized. It, but Jesus is saying, don't do that. Don't do that. Now, now let, me, let me try to pull this down here. Because <clears throat> all the research I read tells me that the world hates us for the wrong reasons. In my judgment. They hate us because we're judgmental. They hate us because we, we, they think we hate certain groups of people. Different orientations. They hate us... <clears throat> Because they think we're very unconcerned about the poor or the disenfranchised. They hate us. I'm just telling you, this is the research from the Pew Foundation. This is the research from Barna. This is why the world hates us. We got to fix that. Right? We can't be known to be hated because we don't care about the poor and the disenfranchised. Jesus said, you know, blessed are you of my father. I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was naked and you gave me something to wear. We're supposed to be known for that kind of stuff. We've confused loving others with that we're approving. Listen, you did the same thing you did your kids. Did your kids ever do something you didn't approve of? Surely not. I know all your children were immaculately conceived. <laughs> right? Did your kids ever do anything you didn't approve of? Did you stop loving them? No. Marty quotes a verse that I've often thought about in this context, and so I'm going to do, you can just run over there with me. Go to your table of contents. Find the book of 1 Peter. Go over here. Find the book of 1 Peter, or on your phone, or whatever you got, or if you got it memorized, 1163. This is what I'm saying here is the world may hate us because we genuinely believe and trust the word of God. They can't be hating us for other stuff that's in the word of God. Now, Marty often quotes this, and I think he's right in doing so when it says here in verse 15 of chapter 3, 1 Peter, did I give you the chapter? I expect you to read my mind, which would be a short read if you did. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart, always being ready to make a defense to anyone, watch this, who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you with gentleness and reverence. In other words, be ready to give an account, to answer. When anybody asks, asks you. Now, you know what? You can't read that verse in isolation. Back up to 13. Verse 13. Watch this. Who is there to harm you if you are zealous to do good? The thought is nobody. But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you're blessed. Don't fear. Don't be intimidated. Don't be troubled. 
but sanctify or set the Lord apart in your heart. Always being ready to make a defense to anyone who asks of you the hope that's in you. Listen, the reason people are asking about the hope that's in us is they've seen followers of Jesus suffer for good. And they want to know, why are you doing that? We suffer sometimes because we demand our rights. We suffer sometimes because we demand our way. And Peter is saying here, listen, if you want people to ask you, hey, Doug, what's the hope you have in you? How come you're acting like that? What is it about your life that, that causes you to take this trouble? You didn't cause it. You didn't do anything wrong, but you're taking it by sanctifying the Lord in your heart. What have you got, man? Yeah, Meg? Huh? I can't hear that. What? Your target story, yeah. Yeah, about her, Meg's battling brain cancer. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, what drug are you on? You know, they're saying. Yeah. Yeah. Listen, this is the role sometimes of suffering in life. People that aren't followers of Jesus can be happy when things are going along, and so can we, right? It takes no power, it takes nothing, nothing. But when followers of Jesus, the world hates us, and they see people living, maybe mistreated, or maybe that somebody said something about you wrong, and it's not true, and you, you bear it. I'm not talking about letting people run over you. I'm not talking about enabling people. This is too complicated to do this in one minute. But what I am suggesting is to say that in the church, they were known for people that whenever they went through suffering or difficulty, they bore it with a sense of grace and honor to honor Jesus. And then people kept saying, what's going on with you? We're Americans. We demand our rights. I get that. I'm not, I'm not trying to, I can't figure this all out. I'm not trying to unravel it, untangle it. I am saying sometimes the world hates us for the wrong reason. Would you agree with that? They hate us, but they hate us for the wrong reason. We think about, well, we want to stand up for righteousness and not, we, we want to condemn sin and it's wrong. I understand that. I get that. But But what about the other verses that talk about us as being peace-loving and merciful and kind and caring and loving? I want people to ask me, and I'm scared to say this. I want people to ask me, why are you different? What is it about you? that you bear up under this illness or you bear up under people maybe saying things about you that we know aren't true or you bear up under the sense of being excluded at work because you're a Christian. You're not angry. You're not mad. You're not pouty. You're not trying to get back at people. I'm telling you, guy I know, Shane Claiborne said this. 
He's a guy who lives up in Philadelphia. He's a radical. He's a wild man. I don't even want to be around him. Uh, he scares me. He said this. He said, my life was going along great till Jesus showed up. I thought, ooh, there's some truth to that. My life was pretty manageable, you know, till I, till I had to start saying, hey, Cliff, remember that verse that says, if you get out of sorts with Becky, your prayers are going to be hindered. Dead coming. Right? It's complicated. It's complicated. Number three, we're going to hurry through this because I want to give you something to do. I think this will go forward. Maybe it won't. Maybe it's gone to sleep. All right, let me give you this last part. It's a place to be set apart. It's a place that should be on your outline number three. You see that? Place of God, a place to be set. Notice what Jesus said in 1717. He says, sanctify them in your truth. I don't have time. We'll come back and get this next week. But this idea of sanctify, the word sanctify comes from the Greek word that means to set apart for exclusive use. It, it, it means to set apart for exclusive use. That, that the place that the word of God should have in our, is a place of being set apart. That our, that our mind and heart and understanding should be set apart to what does God say? What is his word? Jesus says, sanctify them, set apart, set them apart in truth. Your word is the truth. Is that where your mind goes? Is that, is that where my mind goes to say, I want my mind set apart exclusively to the truth of God. Now, I'm not saying I don't, I don't read other books or I don't think about science or history. I'm simply saying that Jesus is saying the place that the word of God ought to have is a set apart place specifically for his word in your life. Is your default setting to go, hey, I wonder what God's word says about that. A decision comes up, a situation. I wonder does God's word, it may not, it may not speak to that, but to say, I wonder if that, that's that set apart. The, the, the word here, set apart or sanctify, is the word we translate holy. It means set apart for exclusive use. We, we used to use it a lot in, uh, uh, we call it holy matrimony, right? I mean, we're being set apart to one person. We're being set apart. I can't tell you, I was thinking this the other day uh, in, with my students to say that this idea of we get that whenever a person's in holy matrimony, they're set apart to a particular person. Jesus is saying this, hey, be set apart to God's word. At least consult it first. Maybe there isn't something in there. You know, my students will kind of say, you know, I'm trying to determine who I should marry and reading the Bible, I'll say, well, good luck. Because in the Bible, it's not going to answer that because it was your dad who decided back then. There are things the Bible doesn't reference specifically, but there are principles and ideas. So to be set apart, to be sanctified, if you will, set apart for this matter of God's word? Are my values set apart exclusively to God? Does my mind go to his word first? Or is it set apart to my training and my background? I'm gonna give you an application here. I, I don't know what's happened to my little uh, PowerPoint thing here, but I want you on the application underneath that, what if? Here's, here's, here's what I wanna ask you to consider and then we'll... As you know, we'll keep working next week. What if, what if you reflect 
on the place God's word or scripture has in your life, schedule, or priorities. That blank should be life, schedule, priorities. What if you reflect on the place God's word or scripture has in your life, schedule, and priorities? How can you continue in this place? How can you continue in this place? Or what changes do you need to make? What changes do you need to make to make a place for God's word, scripture, in your life? Now, I want to say two things and I'm going to let you go. I'm always concerned. I, you know, I, I teach students and, I, and, I've, and I've checked them and talked to them for years. Everybody has been told that they should study the Bible. But over 96% of my students over the last 26 years, nobody's ever shown them how. Okay? I'm irritated about that. Of course, I get irritated a lot of this stuff. So here's what I want to say to you. If you say, you know what? I want to... I want to change the way I'm making a place for God's word. Here's a good habit to start with. Quit reading the Bible by jumping around in it. Pick a book and read it till you get through it. These were books, not just one-liners. Find a book in the Bible and read through it from chapter one one day, chapter two the next day, chapter three the next day, chapter four. That's a general reading rule that will help you to get more out of the Bible than if you keep jumping around, skipping around, reading this passage. Okay. Second thing, on the real life page, I didn't have time to print them. On the real life Facebook page, I'm gonna put a couple of Bible study methods you can download, okay? I'm not just interested in saying you should, here's how you can, okay? So they'll be on the Facebook page for you to be able to download. You can follow one that will be a, a, a study of the epistles or you can use the other one that's a study in narrative or the gospels. Either way, would you consider what is the place that scripture has in your life? What role is it playing in my life, in your life? This is a critical point. So I'll put those up there for you so you can use them or if you're using something else, just go for it. Just do that. We'll have that available for you. But I just want to cause us to pause here and in Jesus' prayer to say, what is the place that scripture, is it that it's fulfilled? Is it that it's complicated? Is it that it is where I am set apart and sanctified in my life? Let's pray. Jesus, we come to you to say we thank you for this prayer and the truths of it. There's much more than I know, much more than I'm able to explain. But I pray that you will really help us this week to find our place in Scripture. Where is it that we need to make a change in our lives? We'll be careful to give your name the praise as we look to you and follow you this week in Jesus' strong name. Amen.